The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Always a joy to look at God's Word together. Let's pray and ask for help. Our Father, uh, what, what we see in this text, Lord, is uh, it's painful. It digs around in our hearts, digs around in things we don't want to think about, don't want to remember. But Lord, this, this text is your word, and we need it. We need it. So Lord, help us come to you, our great God and Father, our loving Savior, uh, our helper and friend, the Holy Spirit. Um, let us come to you, Lord, just for heart surgery this morning, and, and show us what you want to show us, heal us how you want to heal us. And then free us, Lord, in new ways to bring you glory as we share with others what you've done in us. So uh, do what I can't do, Lord, we pray. We pray for your help. We open ourselves up to you now in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed it's easy to kind of gloss the heroes of faith in the Bible and you, and you hear their names, you remember them from Sunday school or something, and you just assume that they were strong righteous people. Of course, that all melts away when you actually study the Bible in detail, right? It can be shocking to remember that there are killers in the family of God. I want to compare and contrast two of them with you for just a moment. One of them is King David. He's the author of the psalm we're considering today. So in the beginning of the psalm, you see he's saying, what's he saying? I can't hide, he's saying. He's saying, I feel dirty. He says, I'm sick. He says, I'm ashamed. And you could ask yourself, the, the King David, right? The righteous king, why would he say these things about himself? And then you read the subscript to the psalm right there. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And then you remember the story, don't you? Do you remember the story? This righteous king, right, the man after God's own heart, he saw the only wife of his loyal friend Uriah, and he lusted after her. And despite the warnings from his own servants, he abused his power, his power designed to serve and protect. No, he used his power to abuse and to dominate, and he took her and he got her pregnant. And after breaking his integrity that night, he continued breaking his integrity to keep his deeds in the dark. He became a schemer, ending up even arranging Uriah's murder, which caused the death of more of his own soldiers as well. The prophet Nathan came to David and gave this courageous sermon. It probably wasn't what David at first wanted to hear. He told the king a story that got David all kind of fired up in his self-righteousness. And at the end of the story, the text says, David's anger was greatly kindled. And he said, that man deserves to die. And then Nathan just mic drops these four famous words. You are the man. And it all hit him. It all hit him. The nakedness of his idolatry was exposed. He had to deal with the reality that he was not the righteous king he had portrayed to others. In fact, he had been despising God 
And as he had despised God, he had destroyed others. Painful thing to hear. So David writes this amazing psalm in response to that. That's what this psalm is coming out of. It's about how to respond to God when you are lost in the guilt and shame of your own sin. How to respond to God when you're lost in the guilt and shame of your own sin. And though this psalm is inspired by God and an incredible help for us, I just want to tell you, I don't think David himself could ever fully follow his own advice. I'll tell you why I say that. Look at verse 13. This is what the process is supposed to do in us, right? Verse 13, Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. So what's supposed to happen is God helps us respond to him in the midst of our guilt and shame. What happens? There's a transformation. And suddenly now I'm able to teach transgressors your ways. I'm able to share with others what you've done in me. I want to show you this verse in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 1, verse 5. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Now, I know the text says that this young man is the son of Haggith. Haggith is David's wife, all right? So this is David's son. And, and he's so prideful, the text tells us, he's, he's going to self-make himself king. He's going to establish himself as king. Why is he so prideful? Why is he so presumptive? Here's the answer, 1 Kings 1.6. His father. Who's his father? David. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking him, why have you done thus and so? Why was Adonijah a prideful mess? Because David was a shameful mess. God knows we need faithful, active fathers, not only to love and to provide, but to challenge and to be an example And the text here tells us David was never that kind of father to Adonijah. Why? I have a theory. I think if you read 2 Samuel, I think that after the sin with Bathsheba and all that occurred as a result of it, I think part of the answer was that David was frozen solid in shame. He felt too hypocritical to function as the leader and the father he should have been. He, he was never able actually to do what he said in Psalm 51, then I'll teach transgressors your ways. He wasn't able to do that for his son anyway. I think some of us know about this idea very profoundly, very personally. Have you ever seen enduring shame freeze others from being who they are designed by God to be? Or maybe you're realizing that enduring shame is freezing you. It keeps you from sharing, from talking, from proclaiming, from loving, from serving God freely because you know what we want to do in our shame? You know what we do with the shameful aspects of our lives? We hide. That's what I do in my shame. I, I want to hide. 
Uh, In his book, The Soul of Shame, psychiatrist Kurt Thompson says this. He says, shame corrupts our relationships with God and each other. Think about that. Not able to relate, open up, share, act as we could or should. Corrupts our relationships with God and each other and disintegrates any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. These gifts include any area of endeavor that promotes goodness, beauty, and joy in and for the lives of others. C.S. Lewis saw the same thing. He wrote, I sometimes think that shame, mere awkward, senseless shame, does as much towards preventing good acts and straightforward happiness as any of our vices can do. So that's David. There's another name hero of the faith with just as much reason to be ashamed as David. His name was Paul. What does Paul say about himself? 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of the apostles. And what's the next word? Unworthy. You know what it feels like to sense that you're deeply unworthy? Unworthy to be called an apostle. And why does he say this? Because I persecuted the church of God. Just like David got lost in his idolatry, Paul got lost in his idolatry as well. An idolatry of self righteous religious identity and he got so lost in it that he went after Christians with bloodthirsty vengeance this is what Paul said Acts 22 4 I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women his idolatry got exposed didn't it when Jesus met him on that road later in 1 Timothy 1 15 The one who, remember, Paul used to be the good guy out to get the bad guys. Now he calls himself the foremost of sinners, the chief of sinners, the principal of sinners, the first in line of sinners. He's not putting on a show when he says that. He's had to meet it. He knew that in his idolatry, it moved him to cause deep harm to entire families that he now loved. And their pain, do you think it went away just because he converted? He had to live with what he had done and there was nothing he could do to change it. The nakedness of his idolatry had been exposed. But amazingly, especially in comparison to David, amazingly, Paul did live with it. Paul's shame did not do to Paul what David's shame did to David. Two killers, both forgiven and in the family of faith, and one recovered to minister in an amazing way, a remarkable way. Somehow Paul was able to take David's advice better than David was. This spring, our theme is going to be responding to the reality of Jesus. Uh, We went through Hebrews this whole fall. We're going to get back there again next week, Lord willing. It's going to be about responding to Jesus as your priest. The last few weeks as we've started off this year, we've looked at responding to God's word, responding to God in prayer. This week from Psalm 51, we're thinking about how to respond to God in the midst of guilt and shame. 
And this is so important. One reason it's so important, we all have to deal with shame and regret about something, don't we? There's no one in here that's not dealing with shame somehow. Moreover, don't you want to be able to help other people deal with their own shame? Don't, don't you want to be able to engage in this? And you know, this conversation is especially important in light of the issue of abortion. This morning, we are remembering Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we are remembering the value of every human life. The issue is settled for us, isn't it, with this foundational truth? What did God say, Genesis 1:27? God created man, what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So as those who know the living God, know his word, we want to proclaim, right? The value of a human being is not in her size. It's not in her level of development. It's not the environment in which she lives. It's not how much she's dependent on someone else. It's not defined by her economic standard or status or her gender. The value of a person is not in his or her wantedness or ethnicity or age or even circumstance of conception. No, the value of every human being is derived from the one who made her or him. And so that means all human beings without distinction are made in the image of God, worthy of dignity, value, respect, and protection, period. Amen? Amen. But of course, we know as members of the human race, we who rebel against God, who seek out idolatry throughout our history, haven't we? We stubbornly, repeatedly deny this truth. It's biblical reality, right? Didn't we see it in David? Why did he think he had the right to do that? Didn't, didn't we see it in Paul? To the point you truly worship the living God, you'll honor his image and design for others. It's true, right? First command, love God. Second command, love your neighbor. If you do, you will. To the point you don't, you won't. And so in our idolatry, our human history, we're full of misogynism, racism, casteism, slavery, genocide. It seems that in the history of every nation among every people, there's always some reason to think this kind of person is more valuable than that kind. And then the kind of people that have more value and more power then have an excuse to abuse and oppress the less valuable. That's what we do in our sin. And nothing expresses this rebellion against God like the system of abortion. Abortion is fluently idolatrous. It's a toxic combination of rebellion against God and our beliefs about God, about ourselves, about sexuality, about motherhood, about fatherhood, about marriage, about commitment, about children, about the definition of what makes the good life. And so as it turns from God, it is destructive to others, especially to minorities, especially to women, to men, to nations, and of course to the children it kills. And it's so important to talk about these big picture macro issues, but this morning I want to recognize what many, many counselors have said. You know, one in four women have had an abortion, right? What does that mean? That means we are all touched by this somehow. Every one of us 
either ourselves or someone we know and love. No one, no one gets out or away from connection to this somehow. And too often it feels like one of those things you just can't talk about. Right? We, t- we, we can talk about it in the kind of the, the, the debate arena. But what about in the re- arena of you and me and these people around us who are made in the image of God? Because counselors tell us for most people touched by abortion, the experience starts with fear and it ends with shame. It ends with shame. How do we respond to God in the midst of guilt and shame? How do we help others in their shame? I think we all know what the natural response to shame is, right? What do you want to do in your shame? I know what I want to do. I want to hide. I want to hide. I I don't want you to see I want to repress it. I want to go it alone. Uh, Don't we tell ourselves mixed messages and shame? Uh, On one side, I tell myself, it wasn't that bad. I had reasons. On the other side, I tell myself, I'm so bad, there's no way I could ever be both known and loved. So we freeze in our shame. How do we thaw? To quote Kurt Thompson again, again, his book, Psychiatrist, The Soul of Shame, he said, For me to be liberated from the shame I carry, I need someone to be able to say to me, you're right. You were wrong to have done this. I need to hear that my behavior was really as bad as I think, if not worse, while simultaneously sensing that the person I'm confessing to is not leaving. So healing from shame is never going to come by just trying to raise my self-esteem. I need far more than that. I need the grace of God honestly applied to my heart and to my mind. And that's what we find here in the psalm together. How to respond to God in the midst of guilt and shame. And whether or not your shame has to do with abortion, all of us have shame and regret of one sort or another. I know I do. Can you name yours? So we need this psalm and what it gives us, and we also need to be able to offer this to others. So that's what I want us to see. This is what the Lord gives us for our healing that I pray will occur today. See four things. Number one, the revelation we have to realize. Number two, the relationship we need to engage in. Number three, the renewal God wants to bring. Number four, because of the Redeemer. Revelation, relationship, renewal, because of the Redeemer. You see the revelation in verses one to six. You see it in one to six. David is facing the revelation of himself to himself. He started his day before Nathan confronted him, the righteous king. He ended his day saying, I have done evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What did he learn about himself? The first thing he learns is just how much of a wretched sinner he really is. All the excitement about the king coming, the man after God's own heart, the one anointed by Samuel, it all melted like ice cream in the sun, and he's left with his sin. And he has to face it. And you see what he's asking for. He, he needs to be washed, which means how does he feel? Filthy. You ever just felt filthy in your shame? He he needs to be put back together. He can't heal himself. He can't 
he can't clean himself. And he confesses his objective guilt. Verse four, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So he's saying to God, God, you are right that I'm a sinner and deserve your wrath and I have no excuses. I have no excuses. And you might have a question, how can David sin that, how could David say to God against you and you only have I sinned? Can you think of other people David has sinned against in this story? Uriah, yeah, Bathsheba, uh uh-huh, all their family, yes. General, his other friends, his, his, his very soldiers, his family, the nation. I think he sinned against a lot of people. Why does he say, no, it was against you? Because he's realizing that the primary issue in how he treats others is his own heart towards God. Let's remember some of Nathan's sermon, 2 Samuel 12, 9. Look at what Nathan the prophet says to David. Why have you, what's the next phrase? Despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. God's word tells us how to love, how to protect, how to care for the widow, the orphan, the fatherless. Why have you despised his word to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and has killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You despise God's word, and when you despise God's word, look at verse 10. You, God says through the prophet, have despised who? God says, you despised me when you did this. You see why it's idolatry? What was David living for, worshiping, making ultimate, making more important than anything else? It wasn't God. That's why he did this. It's idolatry, and David is admitting You're right. I deserve judgment. I have no excuse. And I think here we can learn some things about shame. How would would you define shame? Have you ever tried that? It wasn't easy for me to try. It's different from sorrow, right? It's, It's very different from sorrow. It's different from grieving. It's different from sadness. Between what my own thoughts and some books I've read, I'll throw this out at you. Take it or leave it. Shame is the distressing exposure of the contemptible nakedness of our idolatry. That's what I think it is. Shame is the distressing exposure of the contemptible nakedness of our idolatry. First, distressing. I don't have to unpack that. How does shame feel? Distressing. It's horrible. Exposure. Exposure. You know, the first place we hear about shame, remember where it is in the Bible? All the way in the Garden of Eden. When we're thinking about the goodness of God's creation and people actually thriving together, what does it say of Adam and Eve? They were naked and not ashamed. So you see, we are made to be simultaneously known and loved. Isn't that what it means to be naked and not ashamed? It's a holistic picture. I'm seen as I am, and I'm still loved. And so this, this safety and this welcome and this acceptance by God to us and by one another to one another, that's how humans thrive, connection in shameless relationship. That's the way we're designed. But then they buy the lie, right? The lie that leads to idolatry. What did, what did the serpent say? God's not good. 
His word's not true. You should replace him. Move him out of the way. Put something else in his place. Idolatry. And in that choice, their relationship with God and one another was fractured. What did they do immediately after their sin? If you remember the story, what did they do? They hid. They were ashamed. And how did they speak of one another? They blamed. Because they were ashamed. Which is why this this aspect is so important to understanding in our lives. Because undealt with shame rots at your ability to be who you are designed to be because it rots at your relationship with God and with other people. You're rusting out, you're hiding alone. It's a distressing exposure. And, and what is it that we're trying to hide? I think what we're seeing and trying to hide is the nakedness of our idolatry. I trusted in my ability to cover for myself, to make my own way, to be my own authority, to, to put my pleasure or my value here, and it wasn't the God of the Bible. I did that, and now I'm exposed as an absolute fool because of it. I'm being seen for who I am. This is how the Bible talks about shame and idolatry, I think. Isaiah 42, 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame. Who what? Trust in carved idols who say to metal images, you are our gods. And you might say, I've never bowed to an idol. Well, come on. Don't, we know better, right? Is that the only way to be an idol worshiper? Good grief. No. To have anything other than God as your authority, anything other than God as your satisfaction, the one who describes truth and meaning and purpose to you? No, and so we thought we could make our own way, cover our tracks, and we're exposed. So I was just thinking of the things I'm ashamed of in my life. Yeah, that's what I did. It's the, it's the distressing exposure of the contemptible nakedness of my own idolatry. And let me tell you, I don't really want you to see it. (laughs) So then, in this revelation, David has seen he's an unworthy sinner, right? His idolatry has been exposed. And so now this revelation, he finds he has one hope. And it's not in himself. He has one hope, and it's not in himself. What does he plead to? You you hear it all in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, According to, think of all the things he could have said. I, you know, I had a bad day. I, I, uh, all these circumstances, uh, I made a mistake. According to, no, he's got one thing he's hoping on. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. All I've got, God, is the hope that you're really gracious to undeserving sinners. So this is something that God wants to do in me and in you with our shame. Allender and Longman, in their book, they said this, grace requires us to let go of what? Our God of self-sufficiency. Our pride compels us to rectify a wrong. Doesn't your pride do that? I mess it up, I can fix it. I mess it up, I could fix it. And when you hit the revelation of, no, no, I can't fix this, then all you have left is grace. 
We are the helpless recipients of kindness. And so we see in this revelation of ourselves as helpless sinners whose only hope is grace, then we see that just like Adam and Eve in garden, just like Dave in his palace, just like Paul on the road, what does God do for his people in their shame? He comes to them. He comes to them. And he uses it to show them their utter dependence on his grace. That takes us to the second part. We wanna receive the revelation number, four, number one. We're hopeless sinners whose only hope is the grace of God. Number two, that drives us to a new relationship of vulnerable reliance on this God of grace. Vulnerable reliance on this God of grace. Again, the psychiatrist Thompson, he says this about shame. He says, the healing of shame begins and ends in the experience of what? Being known. Why is that so deeply ironic? What's the last thing you want when you're in your shame? I don't want to be known. Because if you see this, you'll know I'm as contemptible as I know I am. And you'll leave. The healing of shame begins and ends in the experience of being known. And it starts here for David in just being known by God. And coming to God, relying on God. Look at these prayers he gives, like verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I'm whiter than snow. Think of all he's saying there. I'm so dirty, I'm so guilty, I can't clean myself. But what's he hoping in? You can. Oh God of grace, you can. Or verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you, you have broken rejoice. I love this poetic imagery. How does David feel? So he got hit by the truck and all his bones are broken. And there's no joy left in the midst of this horrid revelation of who he is and what he's done. But he says, God, you could restore me. You could bring joy and gladness again in your grace. Or verse nine, a big one. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. As he sees the wrath he deserves for what he's done, what's he praying for here? Forgive me. Forgive me. And then finally, verses 10 to 12, this famous section of the psalm, transform me. What does he want? Create in me a clean heart, O God. I don't want to be this fake righteous person with the shame in my heart, living in this idolatry and the sin. Create in me a clean heart. And who's the only one who can do it? Who can restore his heart? The God of grace can. He prays, cast me not away from your presence. You know, I think he's thinking of King Saul. Because what happened when King Saul ran into idolatry? Well, King Saul never really repented, and God cast him out, didn't he? No more. And David, I think, is haunted by thinking, oh, man, I was a lot like him. Don't cast me away. Does your heart say that? When you're convicted, when you feel like shame, mine does. Don't cast me away. Keep me. Could it be that this God of grace, who knows we are such sinners, would stay even as we show him who we are? Yes. He won't cast those away who come to him in repentance. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me, let me experience and know that I'm yours, that I'm loved, that I'm saved. Uphold in me a willing spirit. 
Do you see how he's relying on God in a new way? He's moving into this vulnerable relationship with God. Even after the revelation of what he's seen about himself, he's saying, God, here it is. Rebuild me. Forgive me. Wash me. Clean me. Renew me. Leaning into a reliance, a relationship of reliance on God. And it's amazing what happens in this psalm. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to show us. Look at verse 13. What's the first What's the first word of verse 13? Then I will teach transgressors your way. You see what's happened? Lost in the reality of his guilt and shame, facing the honest revelation of himself as a sinner whose only hope is God's mercy. Then second, leaning into a new reliance a, new, a, a relationship of reliance on God. And then this God of grace, what does he do? He renews. He renews. He renews. So instead of being isolated in shame and hiding like Adam in the garden, now look what he's doing in verse 13, 14, 15, and 16. Then I will teach. Isn't it good when those teaching Christianity first see how sinful they are and how they rely only on grace? You shouldn't be a teacher until you learn that. Then I will teach. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. You know what blood guiltiness is? Guilty of blood. Really guilty. Can God save people even from that? Can he forgive even of that? Yes, he can. And when you taste that, my, my tongue will sing aloud. What's he singing of? I was blood guilty and God saved me. That's not shame anymore. That's sharing. You see what he's doing with his story? Is he uh, glossing it, whitewashing it? Pretending he's better than he was? Is he giving excuses in this psalm? Or is he telling you the the honest truth and showing us, showing the entire community how the grace of God can save and transform and renew even the worst of sinners? Because really, we're all the worst of sinners. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Because see, those who are renewed by the grace of God in this way, they learn a secret. Look at verse 17. It's it's an antidote for shame. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God. And you think, the sacrifice of God, what is that? That's something that, that smells good to God, that God loves, that God appreciates, that God won't reject. The sacrifices of God is so ironic, are what? Do you see it in verse 17? A broken spirit. In a way, there's nothing sweeter to God than when you're really honest about how much of a sinner you really are and how much you really need his grace. And and when you lean into him like this, a relationship of reliance, the sacrifice of God are a broken and contrite heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Again, the great irony. What am I afraid of? If If you saw what I'm really like, 
If God saw, of course he sees. If God saw what I'm really like, I'm afraid you'd despise me. And here's the beautiful truth. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. He does not despise you when you come honestly in your guilt and shame. No, he loves you. He welcomes you. He renews you. And when you see this and you can smile again, you can breathe again in the depths of God's grace, you need to share it with others. Do you think you're the only one with deep and dark shame? And so you see how this renewal works. David now kind of in the Psalm restored in God's grace is able to share what God has done in him according to the flow of this Psalm with others. And and remember, healing healing from shame starts when when you share yourself. It starts in vulnerability. It starts in relationship, primarily relationship with God and secondarily with one another. And I think this is the challenge, right? Am I telling you to open your closet and show all your skeletons there to every single person you ever even sort of meet here at church? No, okay? We're not gonna do an open mic where everybody's like, let me tell you everything. No, okay? No. But is this text and God's word telling you The only way you're really gonna get out of your shame is if you deal with this with God and you share this vulnerably with a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Yes, I'm telling you that. Look at James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healed. You know, there's, there's some kinds of sins, right, that maybe Christians feel like they can't confess. Certain, certain kinds of desires or struggles, pornography, homosexual inclination, abortion. What's, what's on the list of, like, those? And it's like, you can't talk about that. Why can't we talk about it? safely, appropriately. The only way we're gonna grow in Christ in it is to open it up to the Lord and safely and appropriately to one another. Look at Galatians 6, one to two. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in what? A spirit of gentleness, Why would we want to be gentle in restoring brothers and sisters? You think you're not a sinner too? Think you don't need God's gentleness? That's why he says, I think, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Helping someone else has this way of self-righteousness maybe. No, keep watch. But look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's true of every burden, I'm sure, but in context, what's the burden? It's the burden of sin committed. 
That's the burden. Bear that burden, not to apply shame, but to apply Psalm 51. An honest revelation of who we are and our need for God's grace. A new relationship of relying on him for renewal and sharing this together. If you want to talk to somebody, um, we can work on somebody safe and appropriate for you to talk to. I want to invite you to that today. You can talk to me, talk to somebody else. We can find that for one another. This will take us to our fourth point. Uh, So far, we've seen the revelation. We've seen the relationship. We've seen the renewal. That'll take us to number four. You know, you might have questions. How can God just forgive David of blood guiltiness if God's just? How can he just forgive him? That's a great question. You might have a question. How can I know this psalm is for me? Why Why do I, a modern Christian, get to apply an ancient psalm of a Jewish king? That's a great question. And then the question, why was Paul and, and other people able to, able to recover from shame in a way David was not? I, I think it all culminates in this one last point. The power is in knowing the Redeemer. Back to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Do you see this confidence in the grace of God? You start to unpack what Paul thinks about this. We know here's just one picture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul's talking about Jesus. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus Christ, to what? To be sin. Who knew no sin? This is why Jesus said, take this cup from me. He did not want to be sin in the face of his holy father. He did not want to be the sin of all these unimaginable and horrific sins that God's people have committed over the ages. John Newton, the slave trader who writes Amazing Grace, the abortion doctor who converts. My sin, your sin. Jesus was treated as utterly contemptible on the cross as he wore the filth of our Rebellion. He did it for us as our substitute. He made him who be who knew no who he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what do we become? Righteousness. It's by grace alone, the righteousness of Jesus given to us. And, and you know, if you see a picture of the cross, and, and I'm glad by the way, picture of the cross. Thankfully, Jesus is always clothed, right? I support that. But did you know on the real real cross, he was naked. Do you think Jesus knows shame? To have all the religious leaders spitting at him, cursing him, to be mocked, to be hanging there literally 
exposed, taking on more shame than I can imagine. Why did he do that? Hebrews 2.2, 2, or sorry, 12.2. Christians, we've got to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And then what's that next phrase? Despising the shame. What does that mean? Yes, I will experience horrible shame. And you know what? I'm not ashamed to do it because he was thinking of you and me. He was thinking of the joy of setting us free from our guilt and shame. He took it. He did it. He is the fulfillment of this psalm. How do we know the undeserved, overwhelming grace of God? It's in Christ alone. How do we come to God in relationship and fellowship where we can rely on him in a new way? It's through Christ alone. Who is it that renews us by the power of his spirit? It's the Lord Jesus. And seeing Seeing yourself at the foot of the cross, oh, can undo our shame. Because there we see, look at the gospel, see the honest truth. Number one, see this, how bad are you? How bad are you based on what Jesus had to do to save you? Did Jesus get grounded for you? He was crucified for you. You're worse than you could possibly imagine. And why is Jesus there on the cross? He he didn't have to be there. He didn't have to go through it. He went through it willingly. Why? Because you, if you put your faith in Jesus, are more loved than you could ever dream. Do you see the antidote to shame? On the cross, you are known for what you really are. And you are loved forever and ever. Amen. This is God's promise, 1 Peter 2.6. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him, who's your cornerstone? Who's our cornerstone? It's Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not, what? He won't be put to shame because he took it. It's a church. May we receive the revelation that we are sinners who depend on grace alone. May we then open ourselves to a relationship of reliance on God and one another. And may we be renewed then to serve him freely, sharing with others what God has done in us, all because of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who took our sin and shame. Amen? Amen. I'm gonna pray, and then we'll invite Jim up. He's gonna share with us some of his story and some of what's going on at Horizon. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this painful but hopefully powerful word. As we get exposed 
to ourselves, our culture, as we, as we see what we are. Lord, we're sinners. We need your grace. We thank you that you've sent Jesus Christ, and we pray that in him, Lord, you would heal us, restore us, renew us, and transform us so that you could, so we could serve you freely without shame. Thank you that Jim and Patty can be here, Lord. Pray you give us attentive ears as he shares and we learn from him. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.